You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn first of all to Psalm 103, and we'll read the verses 1 to 12. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Then we turn to the New Testament, to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 5, and we'll begin to read at verse 15. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to our hearts and to our lives. Now we turn, once again, towards day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste. And discipline lies both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. 
Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the way in which the Heidelberg Catechism deals with and explains the Seventh Commandment is somewhat unusual and unexpected. And what do I mean? Well, the text of the commandment is, as you know, you shall not commit adultery. In other words, it's all about unfaithfulness within the context of marriage. It's reminding God's people directly and all people indirectly that they need to keep their marriage vows. It's not right to ignore them and to enter into a relationship with someone who is not your lawful husband or your lawful wife. To say it very bluntly, it is not, as far as God is concerned, okay to sleep around and to have sex with someone who is not your spouse. Such conduct offends God. It is sin. It breaks the seventh commandment. And that's the main thrust of this particular commandment as well. But now, beloved, having seen that, look at the catechism and look at what it does with this particular commandment. For one, it hardly refers to marriage at all, except to say that we must live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. And for another, it doesn't say very much about adultery either, except to call it a shameful sin. In short, there is no definition or explanation of Christian marriage here. There is no delving into adultery, its causes, its consequences, its nature. Instead, most of the attention in Lord's Day 41 is directed at the general matter of chastity, purity, holiness, and the fact that God forbids unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice one to unchastity. In summary, then, you can say this particular Lord's Day 41 begins and it ends with unchastity, or the subject of chastity. Chastity is, as it were, the key that unlocks the door to the catechism's explanation of the Seventh Commandment. And now, that's all right. I wouldn't totally disagree with that. After all, you have to make choices here. Each one of God's commandments can be explained in one way or another, and one has to make eventually some sort of approach as to one's explanation of it. But yet, I would say to you that in the process of making the particular choice that the catechism does, some things are overlooked. For example, as we just touched on the matter of marriage, the matter of adultery, we see very little attention in this explanation. And that's not all. There's something else that's also overlooked, and you may have noticed it. You can say the positive force of the seventh commandment gets downplayed. And what do I mean? Well, for example, if you look at Lord's Day 42, the next eighth commandment, and there you can see that the approach of the catechism is, first of all, to say, what does God forbid? So that's the negative part. 
And thereafter, it says, what does God require? That's the positive part. So in Lord's Day 42, and the Catechism explains the Eighth Commandment, the negative and the positive get equal billing. But now go back to Lord's Day 41. Where is the required part? Where is the positive part when it comes to marriage? It's largely lost, I dare say, in all of this talk about being a temple of the Holy Spirit and in all the things that God forbids in connection with this commandment. So marriage, adultery, the positive thrust of this commandment all get... Very little attention from the Heidelberg Catechism. And you know, in the process, there's something else that gets lost entirely. Why, you can make a case for the fact that the most basic, the most fundamental, the most necessary aspect of all relating to the seventh commandment is not even there. It's not mentioned, period. So here's the question for this afternoon, and here's the theme. What is entirely missing here? What is missing in Lord's Day 41? Well, we're going to see it's something obvious, Something precious, something lasting. So what, then, is missing? Any thoughts, any answers? You know, in some ways, I wish we could turn this worship space into one big classroom, and then I could ask some questions, and you could give some answers, and some of you could even stand up and give your answers, but... I realize there's far too many people here and there's too much space to turn this into a functional classroom. So forgive me if I'm both the questioner and the answerer. I'm not sure whether that's an English word, by the way. But but getting back to the matter, what is missing in Lord's Day 41? Especially as it pertains to the positive part of this commandment. What's missing? What is not there that should be there? Isn't it something called love? Isn't it that word that sets all the world at Twitter, especially tomorrow? I read in my calendar, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. It's Love Day in Canada and elsewhere. And ladies, if there is one day of the year when you can perhaps expect a card and maybe just, maybe some roses... It's tomorrow. February the 14th is traditionally all about love. And come to think of it, Lord's Day 41 should be all about love as well. But then, I dare say, it should not be about the worldly variety, but it should be about the distinctive biblical Variety. Now, what's that? What's 
what's the biblical variety of marriage? Well, let's first deal with the general. The general is that biblical love is glue. Yes, you heard it right. It's that it's like that sticky, gooey stuff that you and I use to put things together or to keep things together. You know, your, your grandson comes over and he picks up your favorite figurine and drops it and smashes it on the floor and out comes the glue and you try to fix it. Or that hood ornament on your car falls off and so you get the glue and you try to stick it back on. Or, or maybe your glasses break and you turn to glue and maybe if glue doesn't work, you turn to crazy glue and you try to fix them at least for a while. Glue serves to stick things together. Yes, and you can say that love, biblical love, is like glue. It sticks stuff together. It sticks absolutely everything together. Think about it for a moment in the wider context. What is it that that binds the three persons of the triune God together. God is love, the Apostle John writes. The triune God is love. Love is part and parcel of the character of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are love. They exist in love. They radiate love. Yes, and love also binds them together, Scripture says, in perfect love and harmony and unity and fellowship. So ultimately what ties all the persons of the Godhead together is love. And you know, that's also what binds God the Father to this world in which we live. Pastor DeYoung preached on it last Sunday morning about John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. If it were not for that love, this planet would be a forsaken place. And we would be a forsaken people. Without it, there would be no sun to shine, no rain to fall, no crops, no life, no growth, no happiness. Without it, there would be no coming of his son to redeem and rescue us. You know, ultimately, it's the love of the Father that makes this life livable. And furthermore, love not only connects God and the three persons in the Godhead, and it not only connects God to this world, it also connects God to his covenant people, you can say. Indeed, love is the glue that binds them together. And you can see that everywhere. In the Old Testament, for example, we read from Psalm 103 a moment ago. And and what is the Lord towards his people? He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. In love. And note the word abounding. 
God has oodles and oodles of love for his people. He has this abundant, wondrous, unimaginable love that even causes him to send his son into this world to die for his sinful people. Truly, you can say, God's love towards his people represents glorious, blessed glue. And beloved, in that connection, let me also direct your attention to something else that that a lot of people find strange. Not only is love like glue, biblical love, but biblical love is also very closely connected to biblical law. You might wonder about that. In our minds, we hear it so often, law and love are opposites. They're they're opposed to one another. They're enemies. You shouldn't even talk about law and love in the same breath. But if you think of it for a moment, think of it biblically, it's kind of foolish to say that. For what is love to law? Well, you know, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love brings law to its completeness. We call the summary that we read every Sunday after the Ten Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And now that's important, this connection between law and love. In the first place, it should make us wary of those who see the love in a totally negative, or law in a totally negative way. Of course, it's true, there are some aspects of law that are negative, as, for example, when it exposes our sin and our wickedness, as well as when, perhaps, it acts as our custodian or tutor, as Paul says, until Christ comes. But still, you know, I would insist that the overriding function of the law is positive. Because the law finds its fulfillment ultimately in love. And in the second place, law is very important to love because law is what gives love its substance, its character, its content. For ask yourself, what is love in this world? If you read your newspapers, if you listen to all of the different things that go on in this world, and you say, well, the world simply sees love as feeling an emotion... It's that thing which causes your breath to skip and your heart to beat a little faster and maybe your stomach to bounce around. And for the rest, it's left mostly undefined in the realm of the subjective and the feeling and the emotional. But that's not biblical love. Sure, it has an emotional side to it. I don't think any of us would say to our loved ones or our wives, I love you with my brain. We all say, I love you with all my heart. 
And that's okay. Biblical love has that emotional side to it. But you know, it also has a behavioral side to it. It's about more than just swooning and having Bieber fever. It's about deeds and actions and conduct. It's about living out your life in a certain way. It's about attitudes and approach and activity. It's about living and lifestyle. You see, biblical love has everything to say about God, about God's relation to the world, about our relation to God and God's relation to us and about our relationships to one another. Because biblical love also has everything to do with us as people. How are people supposed to relate together in marriage and in their homes? They're supposed to relate together in love. They're supposed to have oodles and oodles of that glue that we've been speaking about between husband and wife, between parents and children. And isn't that obvious if you read your Bibles? But unfortunately, the obvious is missing in Lord's Day 41. Maybe under the surface, maybe in the background somewhere. But I would say to you this afternoon, really, it should be front row center. And it should be front row center in this commandment because of the very nature and character of biblical love. What kind of love is that? What kind of glue is that? Well, again, the scriptures give us the answers. Biblical love is what drives, for example, obedience. Some people say what drives obedience is the stick or force or threat. Some people would say the only reason why you people profess to be Christians are because you're afraid of hell. That's the only reason. The only negative reason why any of you believe. But that's not what Scripture says. It's interesting, Deuteronomy 11, verse 1, Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. What drives the new life in Christ? It's not threat. It's love. Thankful, wondrous love For God. And the scripture also says biblical love is rich and abundant. It forgives sins, heals diseases, redeems life, crowns, satisfies, renew. Read Psalm 103. This time, when you get home, read it in its entirety and and read it slowly. And think. And meditate. As you read it. And you'll catch a bit of the the richness. And the abundant character. 
of biblical love. And you know, Scripture also says biblical love is strong and fierce. It's not the wimpy kind of stuff that we so often are exposed to today. You know, I get simpatico.ca on my computer and it gives me the news every day and the weather and the stock market and it gives me a slice of entertainment news. And almost every day, somebody's splitting up. Somebody's divorcing. Somebody's turning their back on somebody else and finding another partner. It's like I said last time, it's the morals of an alley cat. Now, that's not biblical love because biblical love is strong and it's fierce. It's as a seal, as strong as death. It's jealous as the grave. Read Song of Songs, chapter 8. Many waters cannot quench it. And biblical love is deep and it's constant. You know, there are all those references in the Bible, not only to love, but if you have a concordance, look up the word unfailing. And you'll see all these references to God's unfailing love in the Psalms and elsewhere. For example, how priceless is your unfailing love? That's how deep and constant it is. And you know, biblical love is also surprising and challenging. Does the Lord Jesus not say in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to even love our enemies? And he says, you know, it's easy to love those who love you. It's easy to love your fan club, your admiration society. But it's not so easy to love those who mock you and hate you and despise you and try to kill you. But that's the challenge, too, of biblical love. And finally, Scripture tells us that biblical love is loaded. Last time we referred to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where the Apostle Paul stresses that biblical love rejects and resists certain things, as well as it aims and cultivates for other things. For example, it rejects and resists jealousy, boastfulness, pride, rudeness, irritability, record-keeping of wrongs, unfairness, quick fixes, impatience. It rejects all of that. And it aims instead to cultivate patience, kindness, perseverance, protection, trust, hope, and sacrifice. You know, in 1 Peter 3, there's this beautiful expression calling upon a husband to live with his wife as a man of understanding. As a man who's filled with a lot of 
biblical love. So there's more need to be said. I hope you get the picture. Biblical love may be glue, but it's a very special, unique kind of glue. And now in connection with the seventh commandment, there is the negative side, as I mentioned, in the sense that God forbids, yes, God forbids all unfaithfulness, all breaking of marriage vows. We are to keep our promises, and that especially goes for our marriage promises. But there is also the positive side, a side which requires us to live in love as husband and wife. And I would have loved to have seen that in this answer. For in this commandment, God is saying more than just keep your vows. He's saying work on them. Build on them. Grow in them. And are you doing that? You husbands here this afternoon, are you not only keeping your marriage vows, but are you also making every effort to love your wife as Christ has loved and still loves his church? Is your love biblical? Sacrificial? Growing? And of course it would be nice... If you surprised her tomorrow with flowers. But the bigger question is just how well do you treat her the other 364 days of the year? And you wives, are you also committed to seeing your marriage glue grow stronger and stronger? Are you able to love your husband for who he is instead of trying to remake him perhaps in your own image? Do you strive to enjoy life with a husband that God calls on you to love? You know, truly, God has given us this seventh commandment To direct our attention to our marriages, to their stability, their quality, and their promotion. He wants, and maybe that's the bottom line, he he wants a covenant people who know how to love as he loves. This commandment is saying, and through this commandment God is saying to us that he wants the best for us. The deepest joy. The greatest peace. The richest happiness. He's commanding us and trying to teach us how we can avoid marriage hell. And instead enjoy marriage heaven. But then speaking about heaven, there is one more thing that we need to realize in all of this. One day... Yes, one day, marriage love will come to a close. Marriage love is not meant to last forever and ever. We are not Muslims who believe that marriage continues in heaven and that martyrs get to enjoy 
numerous virgins. We don't support debauchery in heaven. And neither are we Mormons who believe that already here we can marry for the afterlife and thus expect to have a harem in heaven. Our Lord Jesus Christ said very clearly, for example, in Mark 12, that when the dead rise, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So the love that functions within the context of our marriages will one day end. But yet, there is something else that will never end. And it is the love of God for us. You know, Psalm 103 again says that from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. God's glue, in other words, never expires. It'll keep on working. Working through this life, working into the life to come. Working powerfully and working perfectly. And that should encourage us. It should encourage us, for example, when age or sickness takes our marriage partner away. When we say goodbye to a spouse, as Christians we do so in faith and in hope. We do so in the knowledge and the certainty that when we surrender our loved ones, we are surrendering them to the love of God. And what can be better than that? And the same goes for our children. We love them from the moment that they are born, and we will never stop loving them, even if often we end up loving them in pain. But there may come a time when they too are taken from us. And that's always very, very hard to deal with. But yet there's hope. For we surrender them not to fate or not to chance, not to uncertainty, but we surrender them to our God and Father in Christ, who has loved them before this world came to be, and who will love them always, even when this world is no more. For this love of God really does endure forever and ever. So I would say to you, beloved, this afternoon, don't forget about what's missing in Lord's Day 41. See it, embrace it, pray over it, work at it. May love, true biblical love, abound in your marriage, in your relationships, in your homes, filling them with much laughter and deep and abiding joy. Amen. 
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.